Section 8. Woman and the Republic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Halper, Summit, New Jersey. Woman and the Republic by Helen Johnson. Section 8. Woman Suffrage and Philanthropy. The extinction of human bondage, more perhaps than any other one event, has emphasized the progress of the century about to close. Our generation has witnessed the destruction of serfdom in Russia and of slavery in Brazil and the United States. Freedom was gained, but of the enlightened rulers through whom it was won, two were assassinated and one was exiled to die. Sacrifice is still the price of liberty. Much stress has been laid by suffragists upon the supposed fact that the woman's suffrage movement grew up as a logical conclusion from the anti-slavery movement. It grew out of it in the sense of having been born in its midst, but I believe that the truth will be found to be that it was the most prolific source of the dissensions that marred that noble cause, and was identified with the small element that adopted wild notions or use the notoriety gained by opposition to slavery in order to propagate mischief. The conduct of those who later entered the suffrage movement hindered the public work of women from the time of organized effort for the slave until slavery fell pierced to death amid the horrors of a fratricidal war. I will take a brief survey of the anti-slavery struggle as it blended itself with the doctrines of those abolitionists who were the earliest and staunchest friends of the suffrage movement, and compare it with the statements and claims of the women themselves. I first refer to the life of James G. Burney, by his son, General William Burney. James G. Burney was an early friend of Henry B. Stanton, husband of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and with him helped to lay the foundations of the Free Soil Party, and later the Republican Party. General Burney says of his father, In his visit to New York and New England, in May and June 1837, Mr. Burney's chief object had been to restore harmony among anti-slavery leaders on doctrines and measures, and especially to check a tendency, already marked in Massachusetts, to burden the cause with irrelevant reforms, real or supposed. With this view, he had attended the New England Anti-Slavery Convention held at Boston May 30th to June 2nd inclusive, accepted the position of one of its vice presidents, and acted as a member of its committee on business. Reverend Henry C. Wright, the leader of the No Human Government, Women's Rights, and Moral Reform Factions, was a member of the convention, but received no appointment on any committee. On June 23rd, in The Liberator, his newspaper, Mr. Garrison denounced human governments. July 4th, he spoke at Providence, as if approvingly, of the overthrow of the nation, the dismemberment of the Union, and the dashing in pieces of the Church. July 15th, an association of Congregational Ministers issued a pastoral letter against the new doctrines. August 2nd, Five clergymen claiming to represent nine-tenths of the abolitionists of Massachusetts published an appeal which was directed more especially against the course of the Liberator. 
August 3rd, the abolitionists of Andover Theological Seminary issued a similar appeal. Among the complaints were some against speculations that led inevitably to disorganization, anarchy, unsettling the domestic economy, removing the landmarks of society, and unhinging the machinery of government. A new anti-slavery society in Bangor passed the following resolution, that, while we admit the right of full and free discussion of all subjects, yet, in our judgment, individuals rejecting the authority of civil and parental governments ought not to be employed as agents and lecturers in promoting the cause of emancipation. In his autobiography, speaking of this time, Frederick Douglass says, I believe my first offense against our anti-slavery Israel was committed during these Syracuse meetings. It was in this wise. Our general agent, John A. Collins, had recently returned from England full of communistic ideas, which ideas would do away with individual property and have all things in common. He had arranged a corps of speakers of his communistic persuasion, consisting of John O. Waddles, Nathaniel Whiting, and John Orvis, to follow our anti-slavery conventions, and while our meeting was in progress in Syracuse, Mr. Collins came in with his new friends and doctrines and proposed to adjourn our anti-slavery discussions and take up the subject of communism. To this I venture to object. I held that it was imposing an additional burden of unpopularity on our cause, and an act of bad faith with the people who paid the salary of Mr. Collins and were responsible for these hundred conventions. Strange to say, my course in this matter did not meet the approval of Mrs. Maria W. Chapman, an influential member of the Board of Managers of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, and called out a sharp reprimand from her for insubordination to my superiors. John O. Waddles labored hard to introduce woman suffrage into the state constitution of Kansas. Mr. Collins worked for it in California in the early days. Mrs. Chapman, who had embraced Mr. Collins's doctrines, was one of the first pillars of the suffrage movement. Later, when Mr. Douglas determined to establish a newspaper and become its editor, he was obliged to leave New England for the sake of peace, he says, as his anti-slavery friends opposed it, saying that it was absurd to think of a wood sawyer offering himself as an editor. In Rochester, New York, he established the North Star. He says, I was then a faithful disciple of William L. Garrison and fully committed to his doctrine, touching the pro-slavery character of the Constitution of the United States, also the non-voting principle, of which he was the known and distinguished advocate. With him, I held it to be the first duty of the non-slaveholding states to dissolve the union with the slaveholding states, and hence my cry, like his, was, no union with slaveholders. After a time, a careful reconsideration of the subject convinced me that there was no necessity for dissolving the union between the northern and southern states, that to seek this dissolution was no part of my duty as an abolitionist, that to abstain from voting was to refuse to exercise a legitimate and powerful means for abolishing slavery, and that the Constitution of the United States not only contained no guarantees in favor of slavery, but on the contrary was in its letter and spirit an anti-slavery instrument, demanding the abolition of slavery as a condition of its own existence as the supreme law of the land. 
This radical change in my opinions produced a corresponding change in my action. Those who could not see any honest reasons for changing their views, as I had done, could not easily see any such reasons for my change, and the common punishment of apostates was mine. Among friends who had been devoted to my cause were Isaac and Amy Post, William and Mary Hallowell, Asa and Hulda Anthony, and indeed all the committee of the Western New York Anti-Slavery Society. They held festivals and fairs to raise money, and assisted me in every other possible way to keep my paper in circulation while I was a non-voting abolitionist, but withdrew from me when I became a voting abolitionist. The Posts, the Hallowells, and the Anthonys were among the first to attach themselves to the suffrage movement. The Grimke sisters, who were intensely interested in the abolition agitation, followed Garrison to the extreme and adopted the socialistic ideas with which his wing became to a large extent identified. They were also early in the suffrage cause. In August 1837, Whittier wrote to them as follows, I am anxious to hold a long conversation with you on the subject of war, human government, and church and family government. The more I reflect upon the subject, the more difficulty I find, and the more decidedly am I of opinion that we ought to hold all these matters aloof from the cause of abolition. Our good friend H.C. Wright, with the best intentions in the world, is doing great injury by a different course. He is making the anti-slavery party responsible in a great degree for his, to say the least, startling opinions, but let him keep them distinct from the cause of emancipation. To employ an agent who devotes half his time and talents to the propagation of no human or no family government doctrines in connection, intimate connection, with the doctrines of abolition, is a fraud upon the patrons of the cause. Brother Garrison errs, I think, in this respect. He takes the no church and no government ground. Mr. Garrison wrote to the American Anti-Slavery Society of his desire to crush the dissenters, and Maria W. Chapman wrote, why will they think they can cut away from garrison without becoming an abomination? If this defection should drink the cup and end all, we of Massachusetts will turn and abolish them as readily as we would the Colonization Society. Henry B. Stanton wrote to William Goodell, I am glad to see that you have criticized Brother H. C. Wright. I have just returned from a few months' tour in eastern Massachusetts, and he has done immense hurt there. A. A. Phelps, agent of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, wrote, I write you this in great grief, and yet I feel constrained to do it. The cause of abolition here was never in so dangerous and critical a position before. Mutual jealousies on the part of the laity and clergy are rampant. Indeed, so much so that, let a clerical brother do what he will, it is resolved as a matter of course into a sinister motive. Of this stamp more than ever before is friend Garrison. And Mrs. Chapman remarked to me the other day that she sometimes doubted which needed abolition most, slavery or the black-hearted ministry. For this cause alone we are on the brink of a general split in our ranks. And as if to make a bad matter worse, Garrison insists on yoking perfectionism, no governmentism, and woman preaching with abolition, 
as part and parcel of the same lump. In 1840, Emerson, in his Amory Hall lecture, said, The church or religious party is falling from the church nominal, and is appearing in temperance and non-resistant societies, in movements of abolitionists and socialists, and in very significant assemblies called Sabbath and Bible conventions, composed of ultraists, of seekers, of all the soul and soldiery of dissent, and meeting to call in question the authority of the Sabbath, of the priesthood, of the church. In these movements nothing was more remarkable than the discontent they begot in the movers. They defied each other like a congress of kings, each of whom had a realm to rule, and a way of his own that made concert unprofitable. These ideas blossomed in due course of time into socialistic communities. There was a distinctly anti-slavery one at Hopedale, Massachusetts. The founder, Aidan Ballou, published a tract setting forth the objects of the community, from which I make the following extracts. No precise theological dogmas, ordinances, or ceremonies are prescribed or prohibited. In such matters all the members are free, with mutual love and toleration, to follow their own highest convictions of truth and religious duty, answerable only to the great head of the Church Universal. It enjoins total abstinence from all God-condemning words and deeds, all unchastity, all intoxicating beverages, all oath-taking, all slave-holding and pro-slavery compromises, all war and preparations for war, all capital and other vindictive punishments, all insurrectionary, seditious, mobocratic and personal violence against any government, society, family, or individual, all voluntary participation in any anti-Christian government, under promise of unqualified support, whether by doing military service, commencing actions at law, holding office, voting, petitioning for penal laws, or asking public interference for protection which can only be given by such force. It is the seedling of the true democratic and social republic, wherein neither caste, color, sex nor age stands prescribed. It is a moral suasion temperance society on the teetotal basis. It is a moral power anti-slavery society, radical and without compromise. It is a peace society on the only impregnable foundation, that of Christian non-resistance. It is a sound theoretical and practical woman's rights association. Among other suffragists, Abby Kelly Foster was resident at Hopedale. Another community at Northampton was sometimes described as Nothingarian. Of the state of things at this time in the anti-slavery societies, General Burney says, the no-government men made up in activity what they lacked in numbers. While refusing for themselves to vote at the ballot box, they voted in conventions and formed coalitions with women who wished to vote at the ballot box. Mr. Henry B. Stanton wrote to William Goodell, an effort was made at the annual meeting of the Massachusetts Society, which adjourned today, to make its annual report and its action subservient to the non-resistant movement, and through the votes of the women of Lynn and Boston it succeeded. A little later, January 1839, Mr. Stanton wrote again to Mr. Goodell as follows, I have taken the liberty to show your letter to brothers Phelps, George Allen, George Russell, O. Scott, N. Culver, 
and a large number of others, and they highly approve its sentiments. They, with you, are fully of the opinion that it is high time to take a firm stand against the no-government doctrine. They are far from regarding it merely as a humbug. John A. Collins, the anti-slavery agent referred to, founded a community at Scaniotelis, New York, based upon the following dictums. A disbelief in any special revelation of God to man, in any form of worship, in any special regard for the Sabbath, in any church, disbelief in all governments based on physical force, because they are organized bands of banditti, whose authority is to be disregarded, a disbelief in voting, in petitioning, in doing military duty, paying personal or property taxes, serving on juries, testifying in so-called courts of justice, a disbelief in any individual property, a belief that as marriage is designed for the happiness of the parties to it, when such parties have outlived their affections, the sooner the separation takes place the better, and that such separation shall not be a barrier to their again uniting with anyone. The community lived two and a half years, and broke up with a debt of $10,000. John O. Waddles, who was associated with Collins in the disturbance referred to by Frederick Douglass, founded a community in Logan County, Ohio, which was called the Prairie Home. They had no laws, no government, no opinions, no principles, no form of society, no test of admission. They professed to take for their creed the dictum, do as you would be done by. The association broke up in anarchy within a few months. Mr. Collins and Mr. Waddles were always promoters of the women's suffrage movement. Mr. Garrison said, We cannot acknowledge allegiance to any human government. We can allow no appeal to patriotism to revenge any national insult or injury. Again, he said, If a nation has no right to defend itself against foreign enemies, no individual possesses that right in his own case. As every human government is upheld by physical strength, and its laws are enforced at the point of the bayonet, we cannot hold office. We therefore exclude ourselves from every legislative and judicial body and repudiate all human politics, worldly honors, and stations of authority. Ralph Waldo Emerson says, They withdraw themselves from the common labors and competitions of the market and the caucus. They are striking work and calling out for something worthy to do. They are not good citizens, not good members of society, unwilling to bear their part of the public burdens. They do not even like to vote. They filled the world with long beards and long words. They began in words and ended in words. Charles Sumner said, An omnibus load of Boston abolitionists has done more harm to the anti-slavery cause than all its enemies. Angelina Grimke, writing at this time to Mr. Weld, said, What wouldst thou think of the liberator abandoning abolitionism as a primary object and becoming the vehicle of all these grand principles? In his published volume, Anti-Slavery Days, James Freeman Clark says of the first Garrison Anti-Slavery Society, There was no such excitement to be had anywhere else as at these meetings. There was a little of everything going on in them. Sometimes crazy people would come in and insist on taking up the time. Sometimes mobs would interrupt the smooth tenor of their way. But amid all disturbance, each meeting gave us an interesting and impressive hour. I think that some of the Garrisonian orators had the keenest tongues ever given to man. 
stephen s foster and henry c wright for example said the sharpest things that were ever uttered their belief was that people were asleep and the only thing to be done was to rouse them and to do this it was necessary to cut deep and spare not the more angry people were made the better again in the same volume he says after describing the political anti-slavery party while these political anti-slavery movements were going on the old abolitionists under the lead of garrison phillips and others had decided to oppose all voting and all political efforts under the constitution they adopted as their motto no union with slaveholders their hope for abolishing slavery was in inducing the north to dissolve the union edmund quincy said the union was a confederacy with crime that the experiment of a great nation with popular institutions had signally failed that the republic was not a model but a warning to the nations that the whole people must be either slaveholders or slaves that the only escape for the slave from his bondage was over the ruins of the american church and the american state and it was the unalterable purpose of the garrisonians to labor for the dissolution of the union freeman clark goes on to say wendell phillips said on one occasion thank god i am not a citizen of the united states as late as eighteen sixty one he declared the union a failure and argued for the dissolution of the union as the best possible method of abolishing slavery if the north had agreed to disunion and had followed the advice of phillips to build a bridge of gold to take the slave states out of the union slavery would probably be still existing in all the southern states at all events it was not abolished by those who wished for disunion but by those who were determined at all hazards and by every sacrifice to maintain the union on april eighth eighteen thirty nine henry b stanton wrote to william goodell as follows at this very time and mainly too in that part of the country where political action has been most successful and whence from its promise of soon being triumphant great encouragement was derived by abolitionists everywhere a sect has arisen in our midst whose members regard it as of religious obligation in no case to exercise the elective franchise this persuasion is part and parcel of the tenet which it is believed they have embraced that as christians have the precepts of the gospel of christ and the spirit of god to guide them all human governments as necessarily including the idea of force to secure obedience are not only superfluous but unlawful encroachments on the divine government as ascertained from the sources above mentioned therefore they refuse to do anything voluntarily that would be considered as acknowledging the lawful existence of human governments denying to civil governments the right to use force they easily deduce that family governments have no such right they carry out the non-resistant theory to the first ruffian who would demand our purse or oust us from our house they are to be unconditionally surrendered unless moral suasion be found sufficient to induce him to desist from his purpose our wives our daughters our sisters our mothers we are to see set upon by the most brutal without any effort on our part except argument to defend them and even they themselves are forbidden to use in defense of their purity such powers as god has endowed them with for its protection if resistance should be attended with injury or destruction to the assailant in short the no government doctrines as they are believed now to be embraced seem to strike at the root of the social structure 
and tend, so far as I am able to judge of their tendency, to throw society into entire confusion and to renew, under the sanction of religion, scenes of anarchy and license that have generally hitherto been the offspring of the rankest infidelity and irreligion. Again he wrote, the non-government doctrine, stripped of its disguise, is worse than Fanny Wrightism, and under a gospel garb, it is Fanny Wrightism with a white frock on. It goes to the utter overthrow of all order, yea, of all purity. When carried out, it goes not only for a community of goods, but a community of wives. Strange that such an infidel theory should find votaries in New England. The editors of the History of Woman's Suffrage say in their opening chapter, among the immediate causes that led to the demand for the equal political rights of women in this country, we may note these. First, the discussion in several of the state legislatures of the property rights of married women. Second, the great educational work that was accomplished by the able lectures of Francis Wright on political, religious, and social questions. Ernestine L. Rose, following in her wake, equally liberal in her religious opinions, and equally well informed on the science of government, helped to deepen and perpetuate the impression Francis Wright had made on the minds of unprejudiced hearers. Third, and above all other causes of the woman suffrage movement, was the anti-slavery struggle in this country. By referring to the columns of the secular and religious press of that period, we find that most of the respectable and representative opinions of the country was prejudiced, Halls and assembly rooms in all the cities were closed against Fanny Wright, not only because her doctrines were absolutely infidel and materialistic, but because they were deemed subversive of law, order, and decency. The better portion of society in the United States was of one mind in its estimate of the pioneer woman in the cause of woman's rights, as she was called. In the columns of the Free Inquirer, a newspaper which she and Robert Dale Owen established and edited in New York City in 1829, she attacked religion in every form, marriage, the family, and the state. She pretended to no basis of scientific investigation, but in a brilliant flood of words endeavored to sweep away faith in the Bible, the home, the republic, in favor of negation, communism, free love. I have placed for but a single quotation from one of her fables, published in the Free Inquirer. It will show the drift of her work in one direction. Is my errand sped, and am I a master on earth, said the infernal king, Pluto. Even as I promised, said the fury, love hath forsaken the earth. Under the form of religion I aroused the fears and commanded the submission of mortals, and our imp now reigns on earth in the place of love, under the form of hymen. Pluto smiled grimly and smote his thigh in triumph. Well conceited, well executed, daughter of night. Our empire shall not lack recruits, now that innocence is exchanged for superstition, and the true affection of congenial and confiding hearts is replaced by mock ceremonies and compulsory oaths. Francis Wright had founded in 1825 at Neshoba, Tennessee, a community that had for its professed aim the elevation and education of the Southern Negroes. In describing her object, Miss Wright said, No difference will be made in the schools between the white children and the children of color, whether in education or in any other advantage. This establishment is founded on the principle of community of property and labor. 
these fellow creatures that is the blacks admitted here requiring these services by services equal or greater by filling occupations which their habits render easy and which to their guides and assistants might be difficult or unpleasing this form of helotism flourished but three years on american soil it is doubly interesting as containing the germs of communism and anti-slavery that blended themselves in the beginning of a movement for suffrage which was directly inspired by francis wright the editors of the suffrage history say that above all other causes of the suffrage movement was the anti-slavery struggle in this country they add in the early anti-slavery conventions the broad principles of human rights were so exhaustively discussed justice liberty and equality so clearly taught that the women who crowded to listen readily learned the lesson of freedom for themselves and early began to take part in the debates and business affairs of all associations and before the public were aroused to the dangerous innovation women were speaking in crowded promiscuous assemblies the clergy opposed to the abolition movement first took alarm and issued a pastoral letter warning their congregations against the influence of such women the clergy identified with anti-slavery associations took alarm also and the initiative steps to silence women and to deprive them of the right to vote in the business meetings were soon taken this action culminated in a division in the anti-slavery association the question of woman's right to speak vote and serve on committee not only precipitated the division in the ranks of the american anti-slavery society in eighteen forty but it disturbed the peace of the world's anti-slavery convention held that same year in london in summoning the friends of the slave from all parts of the two hemispheres to meet in london john bull never dreamed that woman too would answer to his call imagine then the commotion in the conservative anti-slavery circles in england when it was known that half a dozen of those terrible women who had spoken to promiscuous assemblies voted on men and measures prayed and petitioned against slavery women who had been mobbed ridiculed by the press and denounced by the pulpit who had been the cause of setting all the american abolitionists by the ears and split their ranks asunder were on their way to england End of section 8. Recording by Nancy Halper, Summit, New Jersey.